It's often presumed that because Brahms called his Requiem a German Requiem, that he had some sort of nationalist agenda. I'm sure that partly explains why a recent documentary I saw about the rise of the Nazis played the funereal all-flesh-is-as-grass movement as a background to film footage of a solemn Nuremberg processional. And I'm pretty sure that Brahms would have been appalled. Or just take those biblical words. For all flesh is as grass, and the beauty of mankind is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers perish. It's hardly a rallying cry for the would-be Aryan Superman. So why did Brahms specify a German Requiem? Well, there are plenty of signs that he took great pride in his German heritage, and as a composer he had plenty to be proud of. Think of figures like Bach, Beethoven and Schumann. But he was far from rabid and intolerant on the nationalist front. And remember, this is a man whose closest male friend for many years was the Hungarian Jewish violin virtuoso and composer Josef Joachim. Surely, if there were any anti-Semitic feelings, they would have surfaced somewhere along the line. In fact, Brahms came to regret calling his most ambitious work a German Requiem. That reaction may have been partly a response to the rise of nationalism in his own lifetime. Writing to the cathedral organist Karl Martin Reintaler, Brahms began, As regards the title, I will confess that I should gladly have left out German and substituted human. A human Requiem. There does seem something specially humane about many pages of this work, not least the opening movement, which holds out consolation for those who suffer grief or loss in music of special warmth and tenderness. All right, so we may be beginning to understand what Brahms means about a human requiem. But what about this German-human equation? Or at least Brahms' confusion about which of the two was more appropriate. This becomes much more understandable if we can approach it from Brahms's perspective. After all, the Protestant Reformation began, or at least first took up momentum, in Germany. This was the point at which the political might of the Catholic Church was first successfully challenged. Martin Luther's translation of the Bible, the source of Brahms's text, helped define the still-developing German language, 
and mark the beginning of the process by which Holy Scripture ceased to be the property of an educated elite and was opened out to the masses. Luther's hymn tunes, the chorales, were an attempt to speak the language of the people, verbally and musically. They may sound intensely dignified and proper to us, but to the Catholic hierarchy of Luther's time, they would have been far more shocking than guitar-accompanied Jesus pop songs in the 1960s. This was tantamount to telling the laity that they could approach Christ for themselves as one human being to another. Chorale, O Sacred Head, from Bach's Matthew Passion. The great Protestant church compositions of Schutz, Bach and Handel, which left their mark on Brahms's German Requiem, continued this process of democratising the mysteries of faith. Works like Bach's St Matthew Passion and Handel's Messiah brought a new stress on the humanity of Christ, a real suffering human being, rather than a remote mystical entity only approachable through hallowed ritual. Works like these provided a fertile ground for the emergence of a more humanistic kind of religious belief. In Brahms's own time, German thinkers like the philosopher Ludwig Feuerbach and the theologian David Strauss developed a particularly humanist view of religion. For Feuerbach, religion is more important for what it tells us about mankind and its aspirations and needs than about any notional god. This was the intellectual climate for Brahms's suggestion, a German and then a human requiem. But let's go back to that letter I quoted earlier. Brahms came in for criticism for removing a lot of the central religious dogmas from the texts he set. I confess that I knowingly and intentionally dispensed with such passages as St. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. On the other hand, I have no doubt included much because I am a musician, and because I required it, but I'd better stop before I say too much. Brahms didn't entirely leave out God. The third movement begins with a line from the Old Testament of the Bible that doesn't sound very Christian, more fatalistic. Lord, teach me to know mine end. Help me, basically, to accept that I'm finite, mortal. The dark, sombre colours of the solo bass voice underline this message. It's clearly serious stuff. Mortality, death as the end. Yet later in this same movement, we have a majestic fugue in a very obviously Handelian style to the words, the righteous are in God's hand. The whole fugue takes place over a sustained D in the bass, like that secure hand of God underpinning everything. Amen. 
There are times in the Requiem when it seems Brahms is leading even more towards the notion of some kind of sustained supporting power beyond mortal humankind. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. This fourth movement of the Requiem contains some of the calmest, most beguiling music in the whole work, and definitely one of the best tunes. Yet these words are set to a very worldly musical form, not just a dance, but the waltz. Let's remind ourselves that Brahms is also the composer of the Liebeslieder waltzes, the love song waltzes, which were begun in 1868, the year that the Requiem was completed. So Brahms was obviously well aware at the time of the secular implications of the waltz. Heavenly imagery is balanced by a very worldly musical image. In general, though, Brahms deliberately chose texts that slanted towards the human experience of grief and the need for consolation. It's especially apparent in the beautiful movement for soprano solo at the heart of the Requiem. Now you have sorrow, but your heart will rejoice again, and no one will take this away from you. The voice is supported by the wonderful consoling sound of muted strings and the purest of tonal harmonies.
The last words there, wie einen seine Mutter tröstet, as one is comforted by his mother. That image must have told greatly for Brahms in the 1860s. He got good reason to be reflecting on mortality and grief in 1865, the year he began work on the German Requiem. In January of that year, Brahms's mother suffered a stroke. Brahms hurried to her bedside, but alas, he was too late. It was devastating for him. A friend soon afterwards found Brahms practicing Bach at the piano, with tears streaming down his face. Brahms's feelings in the wake of his mother's death almost certainly spilled over into the powerfully energetic slow movement of the Horn Trio, Opus 40, composed in the summer of 1865, the same time as he was beginning the Requiem. In April of that same year, 1865, Brahms sent two movements of the Requiem to his confidant and just possibly lover, Clara Schumann. Actually, most commentators these days seem to agree that the relationship was probably of a platonic nature. Clara was the virtuoso pianist and widow of the composer Robert Schumann, who for a while had been Brahms's mentor. I'm hoping to produce a sort of whole out of this thing, Brahms wrote to Clara and I trust I shall retain enough courage and zest to carry it through. Maybe Brahms needed that courage, not just because of the very large, ambitious scale of the Requiem, let's remember, this is a composer who hasn't even finished a symphony at this stage, but also because he's dealing with such powerful issues. That second movement we've already heard a bit of, the funeral larch-like movement, Den alles Fleisch, for all flesh is as grass, at the beginning of that movement, the chorus sings a chorale-like phrase. That mournful rising and falling line. That's taken from Bach's Cantata number 27, Wer weiß wie näher mir mein Ende, who knows how near my end shall be.
You can hear echoes of that chorale in themes from the other movement of the German Requiem, especially the rising falling pattern. is echoed in the strings phrases at the very beginning of the Requiem. In fact, Brahms told a friend that the whole work was essentially founded on the chorale. These connections are of much more than technical significance. They steer us away from the idea that the work is purely a requiem for Brahms's mother, because a hymn tune like this is a collective symbol. It's a congregational expression of feeling, just as in those democratised early Lutheran services, or as in Bach's Matthew Passion. Bach, like Luther, universalises grief. It's not just a personal purging. And surely everyone, believers or not, can agree with the words at the beginning of the sixth movement. For here we have no abiding city. There's nothing here that endures, nothing permanent, or in the words of the famous Victorian hymn, change and decay in all around I see. If Brahms really was an atheist, it must have gone seriously against the grain to set those last words, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. It's the old Christian idea of the resurrection of the dead. Is Brahms really telling us that this is our hope? Perhaps, like another famous atheist, Thomas Hardy, Brahms could still confess to wishing it might be so. We can sense Brahms entering into the spirit in more senses than one in the last moment of the German Requiem. Here we have haunting words of comfort to dismiss the congregation in peace or in hope of peace. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord, for they rest from their labours. Well, that's something that many atheists might manage an amen to, especially after music like this.
You could say that in the end, this German requiem is actually about the bereaved, not about what happens to the souls of the departed. Unlike the Roman Catholic requiem, there are no prayers for the souls of the dead here and no chilling invocations of the Day of Judgment. By keeping it as non-dogmatic as possible, by avoiding specific religious teaching, Brahms stresses the universality, the humanness of the experience represented here. And there's a message of hope, too, that that age-old prayer, teach me to know mine end, can have a kind of salutary effect for us all. It's human mortality, grief and resolution that are the objects of contemplation here, not a specific deity. Or perhaps you could put it best in the words of the Delphic Oracle quoted by Michael Tippett, another atheist, at the end of his choral work, The Mask of Time. O man, make peace with your mortality, for this too is God. <laughs>